Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What. Today we've got Peter Clark on, who is the Managing Director of InsuraCore. Hi, Peter. Hi there. How are you, Daniel? Good, thank you. And yourself? Yes, very well, very well. Sunny day, can't be too bad, eh? Yeah, finally. Um, Peter, let's jump straight in then. Do you want to tell everyone a bit about what you do? Of course. So I founded uh, InsuraCore about five years ago now, uh, really with the only purpose of connecting the insurance market online. So obviously, for those who don't know much about the insurance market, it's a very traditional market. It relies heavily on face-to-face negotiations, but also face-to-face relationships. And people tend to spend 30 odd years going around the market and building up the relationships they need to do their job. But what we've done is we've sort of democratized that knowledge um, of who's doing what, where and how, put it onto an online platform so that anyone coming into the market can search and find the relevant person they need to speak to to get their business done, really. So, yeah, the end goal for us is really just to connect the market more digitally, more efficiently and, uh, yeah, in a more modern fashion. It is. Uh, it's a, for anyone who doesn't know the, the sort of insurance market in the city, it's um, it is sort of what is it, three hundred and fifty years old, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I was previously a broker in Lloyd's, and you still to this day walk around with paper and sit at a little box, and you have to do a broke face to face and and get it signed by the underwriter. Um, and it's very old fashioned. It's good fun, but what you're doing is trying to sort of drag that slowly in the twenty first century, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and although the market, you know, it's a very complicated market, it's built around you know, complex transactions and complex contracts. So, you know, there is a element of needing to have face-to-face meetings, needing to have that relationship. You know, the more you trust someone, the easier it is to do business with them. But at the moment, obviously, you know, we've, while everyone else has sort of moved their relationships on to a point to online, you know, you have your Facebook, your Instagrams, your, your LinkedIn's, etc. They haven't really sort of made a massive impact on our market. So, yeah, really what we're trying to do is bring the online connectivity and the online relationship building that we're all doing in our day-to-day lives anyway, but giving that professional spin to it. So how did you sort of get into um, insurance in the first place? Did you have to go to university for anything or did you come straight out of school? And was it something that you wanted to go into? Um, I definitely wouldn't say it was something that I wanted to go into. <laughs> I don't think it's something anyone sort of jumps out of bed to, to to go and do but i came from a bit of a sort of an insurance family such so my dad was in insurance uh, we then got my cousin a job in insurance and my brother a job in insurance so um well, when i was doing my um uh, a levels i basically did all my summer holidays i'd worked for his mga so i'd be going in i was what i call chief scanning officer and my <laughs> job was to yeah, take in all the posts that we received all the faxes that we used to get and try to scan them into some form of digital format so the underwriters could actually find them when needed. So I started sort of doing that when I was, when I was yeah, 16, 17. So followed that up by going to university, uh, went to Manchester and did uh, politics and international relations. And um, then coming out, you know, you, you do sort of sit down and go, right, what do I do now? Uh, the fact that obviously my cousin was in the market meant that he said, well, I'll introduce you to a friend of mine who can give you some work experience. So decided to go for that route. Did a couple of weeks work experience, had, had a great time, really, uh, in London market, uh, working for an accident and health firm. And um, they offered me a job at the end of that. So I, I have to say I sort of stumbled into it. Um, <laughs> but obviously, the moment I got into it is one of the ones which it captures. You know, there is a, a lot going on in the insurance market. It can be a very dynamic market, even though we always refer to it as old market and very traditional. There is certainly sort of a dynamism that goes on in the London market that I don't think you find many other markets have. So, yeah, really just got caught up in that whirlwind. And so I spent about five, six years learning the ropes, uh, developing myself as an underwriter uh, before uh, quitting probably 
earlier than I should have done to set up my own company and uh, yeah, try and bring a bit of modernization to the world. So what do you think is uh, the future for the uh, for the Lloyds market, or the London market as a whole? Um, obviously, it's being dragged very slowly into the 21st century. There's a lot of investment in InsuraTech and you're part of it. So what is that going to look like in the next five, 10 years for somebody thinking about getting into the space? I'd be very interested to know myself. Mm. Uh, so again, if we, if we look at what Lloyds have done in terms of driving what the market has done, you know, it's not just referred to it as Lloyds, but... There have been numerous attempts before, you know, back in the dot-com bubble, et cetera, to, to modernise the market, to drive it forward and get the um, uh, get, get people using sort of the best uh, products that there are out there to better efficiently uh, communicate with clients. But each one of those has, has faced a massive issue, which is a cultural issue within the, um, within the insurance market. Um, and no matter how good your tech is, if people culturally aren't used to using it and they don't have the habits of using it, it's very, very hard to uh, break that down and even just get time with them. And I think that's something that sort of a lot of us insure techs have found. You know, there's been a lot of talk about insure tech and modernization at the top level, but the real graft is the day-to-day uh, people who are sort of uh, doing the jobs don't seem to have seen any of that. They are still just doing the same job they were doing before. You know, albeit, you know, it has changed slightly uh, since COVID and the lockdowns, people have been forced a bit more to adopt technology, but there's still a, um, a, a reluctance um, to engage um, at the ground level with InsureTech, I think, in the market. So the rate of change, I don't think is going to be as fast as uh, what you hear coming from sort of a lot of the sort of the mainstream media and a lot of people sort of higher up in the organisations who are trying to drive it. They, they, they can see the benefits of it. As I said, you know, really, unless you're getting the people on the ground who are performing the jobs to engage in, uh, with technology and start to use it, um, all the uh, expensive initiatives that you follow won't, won't win anything if uh, no mm. one's actually going on and actually acting on the platform. Mm. I'm, I'm surprised there because you said that COVID didn't have that much of an impact on it. I would have thought that would be a real driving factor for these guys in this industry to say, whoa, come on, we've got to now radically change. We're forced to change. Let's do this as efficiently as possible. I like to think that's how people think. And I do think there's in a lot of cases, you know, obviously we're talking about a big market. Yeah. Mm. You know, you've got a lot of different organizations, a lot of different players. I mean, even within organizations, you have some teams that are moving quicker than others. You know, some classes of business lend themselves more to um, electronic trading than others do. Um, so they're sort of obviously adopting these things quicker. And you know, to say that it hasn't affected it is you know, it's a lie. It has definitely driven people to adopt these things faster. Um, you know, more around sort of teams meetings and things like that. But I still think there is a reluctance to uh, rely too heavily on them. Um, and the productivity of a lot of people within the market did drop quite significantly throughout COVID. And they are quite keen to get that back up again by getting back into the market and getting back to things as as per usual. So yeah, there have been some changes and it has, I mean, I'd say it's fast forwarded in the market by five years. So I mean, to be um, to be a bit um, disrespectful to the market, but that brings us into the 1990s. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, We've still got a long way to go, basically, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And um, as much as you know, there's a lot of talk about it, you know, there needs to be a bit more action there, I think. In terms of going back to your um, sort of original question, in terms of what the market will look like in five years, I think it will look pretty similar. Mm-hmm. There will be uh, more commoditized risks being traded electronically. Um, and a lot of the uh, manual paperwork will be taken away, I think. But then again, to me, as I said before, you know, my first job in the market was the, the paperwork. You know, that's... <laughs> It's those little jobs that really allow you to bring on younger people. It's where they cut their teeth. It's where they learn the market a little bit as well. 
So, you know, if you take away all processing and you just have your elite underwriters, I do wonder where graduates are going to come out and start, really. Yeah, mm. So that'll be an interesting one to see as well. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll so, leave it there. So from your kind of point of view in the insurtech world, mm. um, you know, insurtech by its very nature is going to require a complete different skill set to necessarily insurance in general. It's going to require developers. You know, the whole world of software is going to come into it and there is a complete ecosystem within itself to bring into the market. So, you know, what kind of skill sets are people going to need apart from the insurance knowledge? Well, again, this is, again, the big debate is, you know, can we attract that type of talent into the market? Um, you know, when you've got half of your, um, half the people in the market say, well, let's get back into the market in our suits and ties again, you know, and let, let's have those face-to-face meetings. And yet those who are, well, those who tend to be the better at the software and development skills tend to like wearing home clothes, let's say. You know, they don't tend to like coming into big offices. You know, they are a little bit, um, um, a bit more insular. And so, we need to build a market which is less around obviously going to the pub networking socializing and everything else like that and one which is focused more on technology that will take some time um and if you're looking at a young graduate coming into the market i would still say sort of the core skills matter you know personal skills uh, being able to deal with people being able to build relationships that is always going to be one of the most important things in insurance for the foreseeable future in my eyes and I, I think it will take 10 to 15 years before really we're looking at a insurance company run majority by developers and coders mm. you know how, how are you finding the obviously building your product how are you finding that is it a case of you having to outsource a lot to sort of development agencies or are there the people with the skills starting to flood into the market that will allow you to employ them directly to build the code and build the sort of back end of these products well the, the thing with developers is it actually stops the need from having to find local talent as such so we can draw on a developer pool that is from across the world. Mm. So we've Ukrainian developers with Croatian developers with it all being managed by someone in the US. Um, so in regards to building a team there, mainly what you do is you just go out to a number of different platforms that allow you to source developers. These guys tend to work as freelancers. So you're hiring them as a consultant. So you're not committing to obviously paying them full salaries, et cetera, in terms of you know, you're not committing to have... Um, have a year's salaries in your book when you only need them to come in and do sort of say two months of work so so it is a very very different structure of work um most of the developers that i know um that are working in the market at the moment on the insure tech stuff uh, do tend to be um freelancers um that have just come in been brought in for a certain number of projects their plan is to work on that project for you know three months 18 months uh, to two years and then move on to the next one that's really how the developer world works um so it's not going to be that type of um it is not that industry where you get this, the careers that you get in the insurance market, where you, you, know, you start as assistant underwriter, you then go to the underwriting assistant, then underwriter, et cetera, and you can stay in the same role in the same company for 35, 40 years. You know, each project is one. So, I mean, I wouldn't ever really hire uh, developers as such because, well, it, it depends on the scale, obviously. But what that means is you, you're constantly paying for developers you might not need, whereas I can pay one guy to come in work on the front end for three weeks at a time not pay him for the four weeks that you know, we're leaving the front end alone for if that makes any sense mm. so yeah it's if, you, if you're going into the development world it's very very different um structure um culture uh, than the insurance market in general really do you think that will change with scale so as these insurtechs grow, obviously there's going to be need to sort of service the code, um, make sure security's in place. And as the tech grows, you know, there's going to be all different elements you have to bring in and manage at some point. 
I think so. No, I think that's a very good point. You know, and they, they, we will have to bring that in, in in house as such as we get to that point of scale. The issue you have, obviously, is the cost of developers in the UK compared to the cost of developers abroad, and how much better and the quality of the code is in the UK as well. So that's something that obviously we've been facing for a little while as well. And the fact that if you want the similar um, level of coding done by someone in the UK to say someone in Croatia, you're paying you know, at least 50% more um, on cost there as well. So they've been interesting um, to see how we as a country um, allow these coders to come in and be competitive. Well, obviously living in London, or if they, if they decide to live in London, pay London rates as opposed to living in Croatia and being able to survive on sort of um, Croatian rates, if that makes any sense. That's a really interesting point for a potential, you know, uh, tech uh, employer um, that the UK maybe isn't doing enough to push the tech industry and learning code and development. I don't think it is at all, personally. From what I've seen, we're doing very little compared to other other countries there. Um, yeah, I think uh, South um, South Africa have now put it on their curriculum for um, yep. students. It's now compulsory for students to learn it as young as like 10 years old. So it yeah, we definitely need to start pushing that at a younger age, I think. It's just going to be such a crucial skill set, surely, for the next, you know, 20, 30 and going on. I mean, from where I'm standing, I mean, I'd tell any young person out there, start learning code now. The more, the more you understand, even if you don't want to be able to write code, having a basic understanding of how it all fits together, how things work, will just help you in general uh, when understanding systems, looking at, if you're coming into any job, you have to know how multiple systems work together, etc. So, yeah, I mean, I think, anyone should start picking up a, a book about java uh, just start with basic script just get an understanding of you know standard architectures and uh, that will set them up very well going forward as well and we sort of touched on this earlier but how much of what the insurance market does and i'm i'm a bit torn here because i have to admit i do love the market you know dressing up in the suits and the going to the pubs and the, the okay. face-to-face you know that is fantastic and it is literally the last bastion in the city of that kind of environment mm. but saying that we all i think everybody in the market knows it needs to change but how much of this tech is going to essentially remove a lot of jobs within the insurance market itself and automate what what is being done by a lot of people at the moment i, I think that's obviously where it, where it's going um i think most jobs <laughs> are going to be automated according to elon musk very soon <laughs> so i think that is, that is a big big worry uh, i think i saw on the list that so the, one of the, in the top five um, jobs most likely to be replaced and automated over the next few years is underwriting, wow. um, which is quite interesting. But I think yeah, there, there are different levels of underwriting. You know, you mm. take large complex risk. You know, you can't commoditize that as such. It requires a negotiation. Um, it requires specific understanding, you know, a bespoke contract. You know, and, and those types of things will be far harder to automate. In fact, you know, near on impossible to automate on that sort of very high end, very complex level. Um, but yeah, as you sort of go down uh, through the sort of more commoditized risks, so say, you know, your, your motors, your um, households, et cetera, there'd be easily algorithms that could probably perform better underwriting um, than individuals. But it will be interesting to see which one's going. I mean, everyone has been talking about the broker and how the broker's threatened. But to me, the broker will always control the client uh, mm-hmm. if they play the cards right. And that to me is the most important thing. Maintaining the relationship between the humans is where... Uh, the majority of the skill sets will lie going forward. It won't be in sort of necessarily pricing or, you know, analyzing risk, you know, the amount of data you'll have now would be far easier to put that into a, into a computer and get them to do it for you. But in terms of managing the relationship side of things, you know, being able to, to demonstrate to your, um, to your customers, you know, that you're going to give a better service or you know, how you're going to distinguish yourself. I mean, 
every rate's being pushed out by the sim by a similar computer. You know, you're not going to be competing on price or anything like that. It's got to be service. So to me, this is what I'm saying. I think those that are sort of can focus on personal relationships, be able to network um, and, and manage people um, are going to be the real skills there that are needed there. Mm. Um, having decided that you wanted to break away from this sort of bastion of um, tradition and do it um, through a technology-based uh, way, how did you start? Where, where did you start this process? How was it for you? Um, what sort of things did you learn along the way? I mean, that's been a, that's a long question there. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, so well, where did you start? What, what was the morning you woke up and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide this? How how did you go about that? Yeah, of course. So no, nothing sort of happens just overnight. So it's just sort of a, a number of situations that arose. Obviously, just while performing my day-to-day job that just seemed to align to give me this, this concept, this idea. Um, so, yeah, again, I was trying to build out myself a massive spreadsheet for our company of all the contacts we had, what they wrote, what they were looking at, what, when we should contact them, etc. what their latest uh, email address was. And it was one hell of an effort, I can tell you. you know, It's not an easy thing to maintain. You're taking multiple spreadsheets everyone else has got saved from their personal drives and trying to combine it so we can get a sort of holistic view of everyone's sort of contacts within the company, um, etc. And it, it ended up being sort of dropped as a project because it became too complex. People weren't giving me the right data. The email is all out of date, etc. Uh, and, and just general maintenance, and it was difficult. But... Speaking to a number of people about this project throughout the market, every single company's tried this at some point. Every single company's got a list like this of their contacts, who they should contact for, what, where, and who. And I just thought, if everybody's doing it, surely it'd be a lot easier if rather than everybody having to update it on behalf of everybody else in their own internal one, if you create a market-wide one where everyone can update it themselves, then everyone can see one version of the truth. You just have to maintain your own um, data and then everyone, everyone's a winner. Um, so sort of had that as a sort of a thing that was going through my head and then a couple of other bits and pieces such as, you know, um, a broker coming to me uh, with a risk that was outside of our appetite and sort of looking at me, well, do you know anyone else who could look at this uh, who might write it? And, you know, you sort of thought, well, that's, that's your job. And I said, well, you can try my friend down the road here. He might he might be able to help you there. So off, off he trusted. And I started to think, you know, there are brokers who are sort of walking around the market asking the underwriters who else they should go and see Maybe they don't have as full of knowledge of the market as they think they do, or as they say they do. So anyway, we're looking into it. And at the time, actually, there was a book in the market that was being um, sent around to um, a B, which is the British Insurance Brokers Association. They're sending it out to all their members. That's all 2,000 brokers uh, that they have in their books. And um, it was basically, imagine yellow pages, but with a list of people's email and their telephone number and organized by class of business. So if you're looking for a motor underwriter, you don't know where to go. You flick to M and you find the guy. And, well, you know how Yellow Pages works. Very interesting. <laughs> um, but obviously, I saw this as a young guy and just thought, why are we still using this? You know, it, it's out of date at the moment. It's printed. Um, it's lost. You know, you can't actually see what people are looking at and looking for. So there's something we can do better here. Um, so, yeah, uh, decided that, you know, we'll, then we decided that we'd try um, a LinkedIn campaign and try to actually advertise our appetite better on LinkedIn, describe that better. But that ended up getting dropped because, again, LinkedIn's not designed to promote commercial insurance. So us putting our appetite on there, you know, the risk we like, the risk we don't like, it's a bit too broad. We want our brokers to know that, but not everybody in the market. Mm. So taking all of those ideas together, I just sort of thought, you know, there's an opportunity here. So while working the job, I actually found a developer through a friend of mine. Uh, we started to build it for me. So that was going to be in a partnership agreement. And then 
when we had one month before he said he would be ready with the development, I decided to uh, hand my notice in and quit my job. Um, I then five days after quitting my job, my developer calls me and tells me that he's, uh, he's, well, his wife's pregnant. They're moving back to South Africa, but all, all the best of luck. No. So I'm left a quarter of a platform, no job and uh, all of that. So, oh. yeah, I mean, if you want to go into lessons learned, this is where I had to talk for hours. But um, so it was a, been a long journey to build a development team we could trust, get the platform working the way that we needed it to, uh, get it to be secure enough and of an enterprise grade so we could be happy with the uh, with getting you know the, the companies that we we're looking to talk to on board um we then got accepted into the lloyd's lab so we were one of the first cohort of the lloyd's lab to go through uh, which is brilliant gave us a lot of credibility with the market there and that obviously helped us then get contracts with bieber so they then stopped using the clue buyers guide and started sending us out so we're now the sole partner to bieber to oh, wow. provide the members with appetite uh, appetite directory uh, such so it's about 2,000 of their members now use us as a sole sort of source um, of appetite information there. And um, yeah, going on from that, we partnered with the MJA, a number of other partners with uh, Ship with Accord and everything. And here we are five years later, finally hitting scale, finally getting the adoption that we needed and uh, finally providing the value that we always knew we could. So are you finding that the market is now sort of more open to these technologies and starting to actually take notice? Absolutely. I mean, I think whether it's just like they're more aware that there is nothing else they can do, I think it was, it was more of a force and push. I mean, when we did go into lockdown, number of calls and emails I got from people who I'd spoken to a couple of years ago, who'd sort of gone, no, I, think, I don't need it. You know, I don't think I can ever see myself using it. But you mentioned that you had this directory thing the other day, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> Would you mind if we came on to that now? Okay. So, you know, once people realised that, you know, there was going to be an absolute hole in all social activity, all networking events, everything else like that, you know, there was a feeling, how else do you build relationships? Mm. You know, if you don't know who to go and speak to, there was no way to find out, obviously, apart from coming through us. So, yeah, uh, we did see COVID helped a lot. Um, and uh, hopefully that will obviously keep going now. And hopefully the, uh, the pennies dropped and the culture starting to change a little bit where people find these things a little bit easier to adopt. But, yeah, we'll see. And what are your two biggest lessons having sort of gone down the, the startup journey? I mean, the first one, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously a joke. I mean, I do, I do the second say, one's do it. <laughs> the second one's just definitely go ahead and do it, <laughs> depending on, on what time of day it is. But um, I mean, obviously, you know, the startup journey is a difficult one, you know, and you really have to be prepared for that if you are going to do it. You know, we too many people do think look at sort of, you know, the, the successes. And we don't look enough at the 90% uh, of us that fail. And, you know, it is hard. So if you are looking at doing a startup, I would say, you know, make sure you're talking to as many people as you can, get advice around it. You know, people want to talk to you, they'll give you their own opinion. And, you know, a no doesn't always mean don't do it. It might mean just think about it a bit longer. But mm. you should definitely start thinking about it very seriously because it's a hell of a commitment. And um, so, yeah, that would be the first one, but a bit, bit of a pessimistic one. But I do think <laughs> you, you do need to take it very seriously when you do that. And obviously, as, you, as I mentioned, you know, I quit my job thinking it was all done ho, only to find out five days later that I didn't have a platform. Um, you know, these, these things happen. Um, but secondly, God, I mean, in terms of two things and all the advice, five years of learning is very, is very difficult. Um, I say make sure whatever you're doing, you're doing it in something you enjoy. Because you're going to be doing it every day. And if you're, if you're starting your own thing and you're starting a startup, you're starting your own company, you'll be doing it 17 hours every day, including weekends. So mm -hmm. if you don't like the industry, you don't like the people you're working with, if you don't like the nature of your job, then why would you do something you hated that much? Mm. 
And for you, what would be maybe uh, a negative of the industry as a whole, maybe? So, you know, like I said, there, it's very different. The industry as a whole is massive. And this is what you've got to remember about insurance is it's, it involves so many different types of people from the classes of business that you have. So you have you know, engine, uh, engineering, accident health, marine, um, aviation, all these things. So all of those different areas attract people who you know, like engineering, but then those that like accident health, those that like life, you know, and people like the, um, so if you are very um, technical and you do like engineering, then becoming an engineering underwriter is great. You spend all your day looking at different construction methods, you know, soil studies, um, you know, different contractors, etc. Um, very interesting. You know, if you're really, you know, quite altruistic, like helping people, going into the life market, seeing you know, how you can provide people with a you know, better quality of life as opposed to just life insurance, etc. There's a lot going on in that space at the moment. Um, but then, you know, if you're into your boats, if you just like yachting, there's marine insurance, you know. So it brings in a lot of different people from a lot of different worlds. Um, and I think this is why, obviously, we've always gone for the um, sort of uniform of suit and tie, because it basically just sort of standardizes everyone, at least for a little bit. Um, but I think the biggest issue, beyond the fact that, you know, we've got all this diversity and everything else like that, is we do tend to, um, people in the market tend not to be the creative or let's say the most forward thinking ones. Insurance is a risk business. It is about people managing risk. So the better you are at managing risk, the better you are in insurance, but that in itself means you're probably not the biggest risk taker as such, if that makes any sense. Whereas obviously to be um, innovative, to be modern, to be cutting edge, you know, you need people to be risk takers. You need people to go out there and try things and be prepared to fail. And I think the biggest issue in the mind, people aren't prepared to fail. Yeah, it's not a culture that accepts failure, um, you know, and failure can often cost a hell of a lot of money as well. Um, so people, rather than uh, trying to change things or trying to support change, they'll tend to keep their head below the parapet and just keep things going because that's the safest route. So that would be my biggest uh, bugbear with the market. So from sort of an outside of you now, looking mm. in, it does look like the industry is kind of ripe for innovation, creativity. There's a lot going on with the Lloyd's lab. You know, a lot of tech is starting to flood into the market. Mm. It's a good place for somebody that wants to kind of change things to go into, right? Is there a piece of advice for maybe a young person thinking, Do you know, what? I'd like to go to insurance, but maybe the traditional routes, you know, aren't for me, but there's all these other things going on. What's a piece of advice for those kinds of people? <sighs> It's difficult without being here. So if you want to come into the market and become an innovation lead or someone who helps drive innovation, you've got to be prepared to convince people who don't want to hear about it that it's worth doing. And you've got to be prepared for, for a battle. Uh, so insurance is a lifestyle industry. People have got very comfortable lifestyles in insurance. They don't want to change. They don't see the need to change. Um, so whenever you're coming in, you're disrupting the way someone's done their job for 30 years by telling them there's a better way of doing it or a different way of doing it, you're going to come against some conflict and you're going to come up against some people getting their backs up and getting riled up. And as you mentioned earlier, there is that um, fear of um, people being put out of jobs by technology, you know, and their jobs actually disappearing altogether if this technology kicks off too much. So 
yeah, if you are coming here, do not expect it to be, you know, you come in with a solution and everyone going, oh, thank you. You saved us. <laughs> Didn't know what to do otherwise. You're coming in to disrupt. Mm. And you've got to be prepared to disrupt people. Mm. And would you do it again? Would you come in and be that disruptor again? Every time. <laughs> Brilliant. Without fail. <laughs> you know. And uh, you know, it's, easy, yeah, it's easy to say that now. You know, obviously we're in a really good position. There have been times when I might answer that question differently. But that is obviously <laughs> the, the joys of riding the roller coaster of uh, running a startup. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, Peter. It's been um, really interesting to hear about what you're doing and uh, loads of great advice in there. Well, thank you. I hope it, hope it helps even just one person. Thank you. Uh, where can people find you, find out what you're doing and what you're up to? Yep. So if you go on to either LinkedIn and check us out, follow us on there. Or if you want to go to our website, it's just www.insurecore.com. Feel free to jump on. And uh, yeah, if you want to link in with me, and I'm always happy to reach out to young people looking to come into our market. Happy to make connections where I can and um, always able to give out advice if, uh, if it's needed. So, yeah, please just get in touch with LinkedIn and uh, be able to respond to you. Brilliant. Thanks again, Peter. My pleasure, guys. You take care. And you. Bye-bye now.